Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Reliability Gang podcast. Hope everyone's having a great day. We are back with another podcast. I'm here with my right-hand man, Will Crane. How are we keeping, buddy? Doing very well, thank you very much. We had a great response on the last podcast. We talked about preventative maintenance, different maintenance and practices, and with a lot of messages, actually, uh, kind of on LinkedIn as well, just kind of just, you know, telling us about all the different types and how that's kind of helped them kind of try to figure out what route is best for them in their yep. journey kind of makes us follow into kind of today's podcast and we're going to follow on from it because I think we had such a good response from it. We're going to go kind of go into a free piece kind of discussion today. The first discussion we're going to talk about condition-based maintenance. Yep. How does that kind of tie into this? We're going to go into a little bit more depth on that because we were itching to in the last podcast, but we had to stay on track. Uh, we're going to talk about condition monitoring techniques as well and kind of how that ties in obviously into the condition-based maintenance as well. And then we're going to understand the importance of failure modes and also how they affect different technologies and why do we choose the technologies? Like why would we use VA? Um, and instead of just having a blanket approach and saying, oh, this is what we're going to do, we're going to start to look at the failure modes of a machine and start to understand what techniques are the best to be used as well. Yep. So, Will, I'll let you dive deep into condition-based maintenance a bit. I'll kind of let you have cool. a free run last, uh, last yeah, week, and yeah, it, it yeah. worked quite well. So um, explain to us what is condition-based maintenance and the benefits. So condition-based maintenance is... A maintenance strategy, just like we discussed in the last podcast, we had preventative maintenance and uh, a run-to-fail type maintenance. These are all strategies that we decide on an asset that we may use as part of a maintenance plan. All condition-based maintenance is, is that it is a strategy that we employ on certain assets depending on their failure modes where we decide that we're only going to conduct some form of maintenance on that asset when the condition changes. And we use different techniques to determine when that condition change happens. And that might invoke some sort of response, whether that's a maintenance action or a task to go and investigate. Mm. What I love about condition-based maintenance is kind of, it's the efficient way of doing maintenance. It's almost kind of saying, well, if it's not broke... Don't fix Don't it. Don't try to fix something that's not broke. And I quite like that analogy as well, because essentially a lot of the time when we, you know, when we didn't have the technologies that we have now preventive maintenance and we see that on, on this on a lot of sites don't we they yep. still have these pms in place to be able to do these things that haven't changed yeah and how many times have we changed something and there's been nothing wrong with that mower that has been changed so we're kind of now looking at well let's leave it leave it alone until there's a condition change that warrants for it to come out yeah and whether that be a, a bearing defect whether yeah. it be housing problems or whether it be a coupling problem and all the rest of and we, it. And we let the technology tell us when that issue is and when to act. And, and condition-based maintenance really came about off the basis that people were finding that preventative maintenance was causing them poorer reliability, more failures, because when we delve more deeply into the reliability type training and stuff, we look at something called infant mortality. So I think I just want to touch on it because I think it's quite important to understand the benefits of condition-based maintenance and that strategy is that fundamentally when we put a new piece of equipment in or a new machine and we do some form of repair, there is a period of time that that machine is more likely to fail. It has a higher likelihood of failure and we call that the infant mortality period. Period. Once it's out of it, then 
depending on the failure mode, we can determine that failure is fairly random at that point. And this all forms under a complete study that was done by two people called Nolan and Heap. You can go and have a look more into that. We yeah. might do another podcast on I it I think we could probably do a, whole, a separate podcast on it because it's yeah. quite in-depth. But when we do the Mobius training, it's obviously a piece that kind of... Right allows us to be able to understand, well, why do we do condition-based maintenance and what is the difference between that and, and preventative yeah. maintenance? And the idea is as well with this type of study is that is understanding there was another slide within the Mobius and I'm not going to get too deep into it, but there was a slide that kind of had a look at, I think it was 100 bearings, was it? And, yeah. and how and when they failed in terms of run hours. And you could see the difference in so terms random. of so random. As some of them were fading after extremely short periods of time. Some were going for a very long time. Some were yeah. in the middle. So this this random element of of when they were going to fail just kind of proved that you know you can't just choose a certain run hour to change time something interval. a time interval to say ah oh, we're going to save all hundred bearings if we change it a hundred hours yeah, for so example like when you we know. look at failure modes later on in this episode you'll understand that some failure modes are random in nature like bearings this is where condition based maintenance can be highly effective because a time based or an interval based maintenance wouldn't be very efficient in doing so and then that infant mortality piece is there because when you are changing something just for a run interval and there's nothing necessarily wrong with it, what you're actually doing is you're putting that machine in a period of more likelihood of failure know, yeah. every time. And it might not seem like it's, oh, you've got a brand new shiny mower that has been installed and, and you think, oh, it's new, it's brand new, it should be fine, it should be robust and it should be reliable. But the idea is there's still an element of infant mortality when anything that gets manufactured, yeah. whether that's down to a mower or it's a product that we buy or electrical piece of equipment yeah. as well, that, that it kind of applies for most things. And as well, another thing as well that I do, you know, condition-based maintenance, and a lot of people have to understand this as well, is that when we're doing it every single month and we're, we're the reason why we're doing it is because failure is random. And just because it hasn't failed in the last two years and it's been green doesn't mean we can start to change the frequencies on it now yes. because it's green. Because Sod's Law, when you when start you do doing that, that, there's still a random element. The, the, the randomness doesn't change whether it's been green for the last five years, That's- 10 years, or whatever. The, the defect, like could actually happen at any point here. It's random. This is where we have to start to understand this. So when we have been doing these condition monitoring programs and some customers, they're like, oh, well, it's okay, guys, because just don't worry about the greens because they've been green for ages. Just just start doing them less. It's like, no, guys, you're not getting the point. Failure is random. Yep. And Sod's Law, when you start, I, I tell you as well, Sod's Law as well, if you start to change them frequencies, there It'll will happen. be a defect that happens on yeah. it. I just guarantee it because that's just the way things go as well. That's it. And that's the thing. Some, you know, some failure, uh, failure modes are very constant. Some get increase the likelihood over time some decrease over time some do all sorts of kind of things and that all forms into that research that Nolan and Heap done but that's the reason why we do condition-based maintenance is because we don't want to be unnecessarily changing an asset when it doesn't need to be because we actually increase the likelihood of failure for a period of time and we want to make sure that we're doing a condition-based strategy so that we can pick up and trend that information because we know failure could happen at any point and we want to try and identify it before it kind of happens. Of course, yeah. We will touch as well later on in terms of um, how do we understand what types to use and as well, that's really important as well to, to understand how frequently should we be doing that test. So whether that's all yeah. sampling or, or... But that kind of brings us to our next discussion point, the types of condition monitoring that are available. And um, assessing the condition can be done in so many different ways. Yeah. I think when people say condition monitoring, a lot of people do say, oh, vibration default. analysis. They kind of default to that. 
Because it probably is the most commonly widespread. used widespread. And in my personal opinion, it's probably one of the most effective techniques in terms of what you can do. It can't save everything and it can't detect absolutely every defect. But the majority of problems that you'd find on a motor mm-hmm. or, or a piece of running machinery, you know, is it, quite effective if you put the yeah, if you're doing it correctly. That is, yeah. and you've set up the parameters and, and you've got the right readings to be able to detect um, a lot of different type of failure modes. It can be very effective. So, well, um, vibration we, analysis will kind of just go for a quick, brief summary cool. of what it is and, and how it can detect different types of failure modes. Okay, so vibration analysis, monitoring the vibration on a piece of equipment. I don't want to go in too much detail, and I'm holding myself back here. because Hold back, well, because we yeah. we're, right. we're so, in a time limit. <laughs> the most important thing, I think, to take away from it is that vibration analysis isn't singular. I find that we find and talk to a lot of people, and they think of vibration as being binary, one thing moving in one direction. When we monitor the vibration on a piece of equipment, we're monitoring it at multiple different frequencies and different signatures are coming from the bearings from the if it's a pump from the impeller from the motor from the electrical line frequency lots of different things we're getting in the vibration data but from that vibration signature which is like the heartbeat of the machine we can determine the different faults that might be going on within it so there's a variety of different faults that we can detect with vibration analysis which I'll let you, you can go through. So, yeah, obviously, depending on, on what frequency ranges we're testing, yep. this is very important as well, because people, you know, can assume that, oh, vibration analysis, you know, you can get these testers that will give overall values. But a lot of the time, they'll only measure up to 1,000 hertz. So True. that being said, then there's a lot, big frequency range of fault conditions that you're not going to be able to detect. And a lot of the time, the thing is, when it comes down to vibration testing, if you haven't done the relevant courses and have the awareness, you can pick up one of these devices and think, oh, I'm testing vibration. And it's kind of just more of a uniform test yep. when it isn't. There's a lot of different fault conditions that you can get from different frequency ranges. And now, especially us using our Falcons, we can measure up to... 20 kilohertz. Yeah, 20 kilohertz. So we're now starting to detect poor lubrication ranges and, and really early stage mm. like poor lube. So we can you do know. poor lube. So poor lubrication is, is, is a great way of uh, understanding if you have analyzed that can measure can that high. That. Um, bearing defects is probably the number one main number thing. One. Um, that being used with different filtering m- methods and different technologies, each different collector has got their own kind of way of doing it. But essentially, that's demodulation or envelope readings as well, which is more yeah. of a filter applied to the vibration signature to purely look at the impact-related events. So for Emerson Kit, that would be um, PQ. PQ. Um, envelope is, is what we use with an... Um, our, our software Falcon. in terms of the Falcon as well, HD envelope and the stuff that SBM uses. So all of these technologies are very similar and how they kind of get, get to their result. They are a little bit different in how they do that. But essentially, they're looking for bearing defects. Mm-hmm. Or I say bearing defects, I'm, they're looking impact. for impact-related so events. you can see gear faults with them as well, can't we? Exactly. So gear faults, that's impact-related event. Housing impacts as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, shaft peak impacts as well so that could be coupling impacts wear. from the coupling that could yeah. be wear could be kind of these type of uh, different fault conditions as well and we can do running condition as well right and then running conditions yeah so the way that I like to see it is running conditions um, is kind of a lower frequency events and then you've got the more defect related higher frequency higher frequency events so in terms of running condition you can get you can detect looseness yeah is another one imbalance is very effectively um, as well so if you've got fans on your site 
fans. VA can be great. VA for can be incredible for identification of, of poor balance conditions as well. Misalignment, another really good, um, very common uh, problem. Misalignment, very common. But again, I say that you know you can the high frequency events can pick up misalignment as well. We've yeah. seen that as well. It's it not, puts the bearing under stress, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, and we've seen different things, and we've done different case studies on on bearing stress and envelope readings as well, and raised floor readings with that as well. It can pick up resonance issues as well. Yeah. You know, some complex vibrations. Complex vibrations. So the identification of these things can be quite good. But I think this is why vibration analysis is quite effective, is it does have a very broad range of mm. failure modes that we can identify, bearings, gears, this. But that's why as well you do need to be... The, the thing about vibration analysis, you need to be trained quite well to understand how to deduce these problems And where to well. look for or where to look. So, it's, it's, you know, in terms of having the experience... Okay, granted, you could probably pick up a device that give you overall reading and you'll be able to, to understand and trend between, oh, is it high, is it low? But the understanding of trying to pick out the different frequencies in terms of different ranges can be quite mm-hmm. challenging. And you do need to have a level of experience and some theory-based yeah. knowledge to be able to do so as well. What are... What would you say, Will, for vibration analysis as some of the limitations? We've talked about a lot of the great things that we can do, but what about the limitations? So limitations, um, we've, we've found this as well. So with, with vibration analysis, you have to remember that you're looking for periodic frequency events that are happening synchronous in, in synchronous ways or non-synchronous ways if you're looking at bearing defects. In terms of other failure modes as well, you have to look at, you know, for example, say, for example, you're, you're analysing a conveyor, for example, right? Where you get impact from the chain or sprocket in a conveyor, depending if it's a drag conveyor or a screw, you can get a lot of noise come through the conveyor. Yeah. So where VA can be really difficult at times is when if you're measuring a device that is naturally noisy and has these, obviously, impact-related events, it can drown out the other vibration signature that you've got. Mm. So... Where it can be really difficult sometimes is trying to detect problems or issues and very noisy, loud equipment. And trying to filter them things out can be quite yeah. difficult. Like ga- difficult. We do a lot of gas engines. They're quite tricky to monitor with very the impact tricky, yeah. events. What about slow speed stuff? I know vibration can do slow speed, but it also is a bit of a challenge as well, isn't it? It can, it can be a bit. The introduction now of obviously analyzers that are able to sample at extremely high rates. Mm-hmm. Now, it is a lot more effective now, but I mean... It's a time balance, isn't it? It is a time balance as well, because remember, when you do measure slower speed events, you have to measure for longer periods of time as well. So Mm. if you've got very, very slow moving bearings, anything under kind of 10 RPM, it can be very difficult, even though we have have done it, but this is where ultrasound can be a little bit more... Which leads quite nicely into our next technology, doesn't it? Exactly. So ultrasound, again, is another technology, and ultrasonic um, ranges are above 20 kilohertz and above. So we're moving out of vibration now. We're listening to more type of ultrasonic range, which we can do via airborne. Or structure born. Or structural concept born. So uh, obviously we had Chris on here. He went into this quite yeah. quite well. And so we're going to try to do um, him some good justice. justice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, he's watching us. Well, we know you're watching us, Chris. So, um, yeah. And again, like ultrasound in terms of airborne, 
mm. kind of sounds can be extremely effective for picking up air leaks. Yeah, uh, pneumatic air is is something that is a huge energy cost in terms of energy production. Pneumatic air is something that is used across multiple industries to be able to create products and services. But the idea of that, you know, if you don't manage or have a look at how much air you're losing yeah. per year, it can be a huge cost. And- for, as well. Just as a bit of a background, so ultrasound is generated through two methods. So it's generated through turbulence and friction, which is why also ultrasound is very highly effective for lubrication because that is the first kind of stage that we have that, isn't it? Yeah, that friction level does happen at extremely high frequencies. And again, we talked about our falcons being able to detect that that mm. poor lube. But remember, that is at a later stage. Yeah. Ultrasound will be able to detect that a far lot. Earlier, because you're looking at the higher first initial stages of, of that initial friction. Mm. So the idea of um, using ultrasound for lubrication is even better in, in the sense that if you can detect it extremely early and you can detect that that, that slight bit of friction. You can make an impact a lot quicker, can't exactly. you? Exactly. And, and the idea of that is if you can lubricate before there is friction, as soon as the friction starts to occur, you are then essentially at very early stages damaging the bearing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It might be at a very slow rate Minute, initially yeah. and small rate, but the idea is if you're looking for premium top class, you know, reliability, the idea is yeah. you want to lubricate that before we even get to the friction state as well. So with ultrasound, we've got kind of air leaks, very effective for lubrication. It's quite a good tool for slow moving as well. We obviously we touched on with the vibration being that there's a lot of time involved in doing that. But with ultrasound, because the bearing is so slow. Why, why is ultrasound so effective in that slow speed kind of range? It is so effective because when you get a difference in terms of friction level impact, right, when you're listening to an ultrasound signal, because it is such a high frequency, the noise floor compared to where that defect happens is quite right. significant. So when we're looking at ultrasound, when we're looking at time kind of time analysis with the ultrasound signals, especially using some of the UE stuff that, Kind of, like, you know, Chris has sent me some case studies in terms of looking at that. Just, just recording the time wave, wave, and looking at the difference between impact related events and, and noise floor is quite definitive. Yeah, and generally, that's the way that we now approach the VA is looking mm-hmm. at time waveform analysis and then using something like kurtosis to give us the alarm that there is a difference or. or crest factor yeah the difference between the peak level noise or the impact of what happening and mm. the the normal because obviously on a slow speed bearing the actual energy behind that impact is much less than say something doing 3000 rpm oh, massively yeah huge so there's not a lot of energy when you're looking at very slow moving events and that's always been a bit of a difficult thing to be able to articulate within a vibration signature or spectra because when that event happens mm. there's not a lot behind it to be able to make it significant and as well sampling rates now have increased massively for the new analyzers so when that event does happen it's not missed between the samples yeah. whereas now that can be captured but ultra ultrasound because it's such a high frequency as well when we're measuring that as well it allows us to be able to in the time waveform identify that quite effectively as well so mm-hmm. for really slow moving stuff yeah ultrasound's always been extremely powerful and i think that has been for many years and now vibration is kind of getting to a point now where it can do that as well but again it all depends on devices yeah sample rates and how you set that up to be able to detect it what about limitations for ultrasound what do you think i've got a couple that i can think of so yeah if, Ultrasound is really good as well. I mean, and again, a lot of now ultrasound devices are able to give it FFT. So you yeah. can now pinpoint frequencies out. But obviously, some of the stuff that we used to use in the more basic ultrasound stuff was more of an indication by just listening mm. or it, g- it gave a decibel level. So 
trying to pick out the fault condition with it can be quite difficult. And again, it's looking at higher frequency events. It's not looking at kind of imbalance or any of the lower frequency, lower frequency events as well. Stuff, so you're yeah. not going to be able to really tell with ultrasound. If it's if misaligned. Yeah, exactly. Whereas vibration allows you to look at the kind of the bigger picture as, as mm-hmm. a whole. But again, the advantages for it as well is for slower moving things. And as well, yeah. you can do air leak surveys with it, which is very effective as well. Look at poor lubrication. And as well, you know, the new introduction to technology with it, the on-track stuff from UE. The camera as well. The camera as well. Incredible technology where, you know, we showed on on the UE podcast that, you know, each and every single little hole within that camera is an actual sensor. sensor. So now what we can do is pick up loads of different sources in one picture and it just allows us to be able to pick up them air leaks 10 times as quick and as well give a picture to it as well, which is Mm -hmm. extremely good technology. Again, a very good advantage for for ultrasound as well. So we've got vibration analysis, we've got ultrasound. Should we delve into a little bit on thermography? Yeah, so thermal imaging, again, is an incredible technology and it looks at thermal radiation, right, yeah. from different components. So and it's not actually the temperature measurement, is it? I think a lot of people get confused with that. No, so obviously it gives a temperature measurement when you're looking at the device, but we're not measuring actual the temperature. temperature. Well, what we're actually measuring is radiation, so what it is giving off from that particular object. I suppose that's quite important then for if you've got an object that is maybe highly reflective. Exactly, because remember when you look at emissivity, and again, we could probably go into another whole podcast. We're well, trying what to keep is this emissivity brief. for guys that are listening? So emissivity um, in a very short form is basically how much energy can be emitted from an object, yep. right? And there's, there's three different things from emissivity. So you've got what is being given off, what is being absorbed, and what's being reflected. So when you've got something that has high emissivity, there's not a lot of absorption and not a lot of reflection, right? So can you imagine a black body, they say... It's a bit like your black radius. Like my black radius there. sitting there giving off energy, right? The idea is that, you know, a, a black body is supposed to have an emissivity value of one. And when it is one, that means that everything from a heat source point of view is given off 100% yeah. of that is being given off. Depending on what is reflective and absorbed with, with that as well can then obviously affect the emissivity, emissivity of an object. Mm-hmm. So the lower the emissivity of an object means that there's less heat given off and there might be more heat being reflected, for example. Mm-hmm. So if you can imagine the system as well where you've got, and this is another one, this is what really kind of used to really baffle me when I was doing my thermal training, um, is a radiator, so a towel radiator that has a reflective surface. Okay, so the more reflective the surface, usually the lower the emissivity of the object. Usually a rough surface, right, has a very good emissivity. Okay, so towel radiators, the one that are reflective, okay, because they're very low in emissivity and highly reflective, they're good at keeping heat in. Okay, but th- that means if you're keeping the heat in, you're not giving it off. Right. So you're not radiating it, right? So they would only emit if you put a towel on it because right. then by conduction, the it's towel to... would be heated up by conduction from the towel radiator because it's touching it. And then because the towel has a high Rough emissivity, right, the towel will then give off the heat. That's okay, so, cool. yeah, re- really, really. And I, when I was uh, doing my firmware, I was like, what? So all these towel radiators that everyone had in their houses weren't giving any <laughs> So, but it, this is an example. So if you put your thermal camera to try to detect the radiation on it, right, there's not a lot of radiating, radiant energy mm. coming off the towel radiator. So your thermal camera is going to only read, 
right? But you might touch it. But it's going to be exactly. So the thermal camera might read thirty degrees, but then if you touch it, you be like, oh, okay, it's not hot. But the idea of it, it's still hot. It's just retaining its temperature. It's not giving it off. So when you when we look at thermal imaging, we have to understand emissivity. We have to understand there's a there's a lot of science behind it, and radiated energy, different gases, conduction, mm. convection, all these different ways that heat can transfer, and it is extremely extremely like. You so know. what can we? What is thermography really good for? So it's very good for looking at electrical faults and panels. Yeah, extremely effective for that as well. But you have to be very careful about depending on the surface structures of different components. Yeah, because a lot, well. lot of like high voltage has like perspex covers and exactly we can't go through those again you can't go through glass as well because remember a perspex cover will completely eliminate any you know radiation radiation straight away so when we do look at these things like obviously ir windows are specifically used and they use a special kind of material that allows us to be able to see that radiation through that but you know again it's really good as well for just picking up kind of mechanical temperatures on on surface temp you know surface Mm. temperatures on bearings as well motors as well looking at kind of winding conditions we've used it quite regularly and noticing all oh, that motor's particularly hot and then we find that the fan cow is completely blocked yeah exactly it clean but the thing is VA when you're doing vibration analysis you know you know, the motor could be completely fine in, in the vibration point of view but if you, until you touch it or you you, you know you get especially some form of indication it's hot especially you know? if you've got maybe remote sensors collecting vibration data it's not necessarily going to indicate and this is why maybe having a walk around is still quite important it is as well and not even that you know if some of these online systems that we've got so the falcon sparrow suppose it takes the temperature. is able to take temperature as well that so true. that would be able to identify mm. both particular failure modes as well so Again, that's an uncommon failure mode, but it does happen. We've yeah, seen yeah. it. And the idea is, you know, you can't be looking at every single asset on your plant, you know, in terms but of temperature. That kind of falls quite nicely. I mean, we've covered vibration, we've covered ultrasound, we've covered thermography. How are we doing on time? Because last episode was very good. Are we doing we well? Have, yeah, we're doing good. We've we're got about good. five minutes, mate. So. Cool. So on that then, failure modes, we talk about it's an uncommon failure mode having a fan cow. Why is understanding the failure modes of the plant particularly important and how does that enable us to decide what technique we need to use it is very important because the idea sometimes especially with vibration analysis it is used as a bit of a blanket approach so when Mm. when a lot of people do condition monitoring they'll just throw VA at it because you know predominantly 80% of things can be caught with it but the idea of actually really understanding again the criticality of the plant and yeah. then understanding the, the real critical items and doing for me because on them is understanding well how can this asset actually fail and is vibration analysis you know capable of capable of picking them defects up to even identify that failure mode. Yeah, because we even have now reviewing another one of our newer customers. We're going through this process with them now looking at the different failure modes of their assets. And we're now looking at even more condition-based condition monitoring strategies than we've had time to talk about today. So we're looking at oil sampling. We're looking at all the motor current testing. We're looking at wear particle analysis. And they've got some extremely large gearboxes on extruders and we do vibration analysis on them and we do them very effectively but we don't want to miss out on the other failure modes like the oil degrading yeah and as well you know you you mentioned oil analysis and we haven't mentioned the you know the point the pnf curve and understanding yeah. exactly what it's probably quite important to put yeah that in. can you put that in the video as well we can pop that in the video see. as well i can pop that in now but if you have a look at this pnf curve you can understand now looking at down the kind of as it goes down the scale to point of failure you've got different techniques that identify the different stages along the point of defect 
you know, initiation. initiation to the point of actual failure. And if you have a look across there, the different technologies allow us to be able to identify these defects a lot sooner than other technologies. Mm. So when we do our kind of, you know, the, the failure mode analysis, we can look at kind of, well, what techniques can identify these things more effectively. So for gearboxes, for example, oil analysis is a really good early detector of any issues before VA yeah. picks it up. And the thing about usually when you do pick it up with VA, there's damage there. Yeah. That means it's too, that too it's late too then. late. It's, it's irreversible. You've done some damage to that. So it's difficult to be able to get that back in the condition as as where you'd want it to be. So the idea is when we do our failure mode analysis, we can look at gearboxes, for example, and we have to start thinking about, you know, oil analysis because it's a very effective way of identifying, you the know, oil it, condition, the, even the oil condition as well. And we can do the wear particle analysis as well, which is even that next level step where we can really understand what actually part of the gearbox is giving off this whatever's in the oil exactly is it is it is it gear is it is it iron from it from from a bearing is it you know copper from from actual gear like there's a lot of different um you know elements that we can look at you know across um all analysis itself as well so yeah looking at failure modes and looking at kind of how something can fail we have to have a look at especially the real critical assets and and make sure we're not missing any everything and to like round it off really with what we talked about yesterday you're going to have certain things like for example belts you know a belt might fail due to it being degraded over time we know belts start to fracture and crack over a period of time now Naturally, that is actually quite tricky to detect using vibration, vibration testing, yeah, you're right. ultrasound. You're not going to detect that belt cracking. So unless you go in and do a actual visual inspection, inspection, yeah, you're right, yeah. So this is then where we move away. Although a visual inspection can become under a condition based type approach we're reviewing the condition and visually. A lot of the time with belts, we actually can through CMMS data and information from belt manufacturers we usually can look at that as being a more of a preventative maintenance task. it is and it still needs to be done but once you look at kind of how things can fail then you start yep. to look at every element of the function of a fan for example that has pulleys and, and a yep. belt and you can say well how can the belts fail and it's a combination of these kind yeah. of activities because when those belts start to fatigue and we start to look at the data around it we can sort of say right well based on our data and based on the manufacturer's recommendations we know that this is a challenge for a condition-based task we're going to put in a two-year preventative maintenance task to check the belts but what we're going to do is we're going to do a condition-based task at a year just to make sure they haven't randomly exactly and that's the thing you kind of choose your condition you choose your battles and you, you fight your battles effectively with using condition monitoring a little bit of planned maintenance maybe potential preventative maintenance and you do a good strategy for the asset yeah, but only once you've understood exactly how it can fail exactly and, and you cover yourself so Guys, I think we've kind of wrapped up quite quickly. We've got to the half an hour mark. So, you know, we're trying to keep quite strict on these times because we're doing them weekly. But um, thank you all for tuning in. Um, Again, what we're going to probably do now, I want to put some more polls out. So I'm going to put a poll out now. Uh, We've got some good ideas and we're going to put four options out. Guys, pick what you guys think we should talk about next. So, guys, have a great week. Take care. Peace.